they are warriors. That is the thing you note about them. There's much more of a can-do spirit in Northeastern Syria than Northwest Washington. I think because I come at so much of this conversation from an outsider's observation point, I see things that might be invisible to others, and I see them as important. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sandisbert of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Gail simak Chief Marketing Officer at Rebellion Defense, author, journalist, and adjunct senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. She'll be talking with us today about her latest book, The Daughters of Kobani, a story of rebellion, courage, and justice, as well as the role of women in combat and the future of women on the battlefield. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Gail, thanks for joining us. Great to be here. Gail, you have a really um, intriguing background, not only as a journalist, as a, as a New York Times bestselling author, but you've also been VP for a global investment firm, uh, and you were chief marketing officer in a major AI company, Shield AI. Can you tell our audience a little bit more about how you came along this career path? I mean, for me, it's about where does your work make a difference and how do you spotlight and highlight places, people, organizations who are making a difference and who are working to make things better. I love that. And um, so you're working with Rebellion Defense now? Yes, I was at Shield AI and I'm at Rebellion now. That's fantastic. Now, your most recent book, um, The Daughters of Kobani, it was a story of rebellion, courage, and justice. So what is Daughters of Kobani all about and really what inspired you to write it? So The Daughters of Kobani is really about the women who formed part of the partner force in the fight against ISIS and who were a critical part and a consequential part of handing ISIS its very first battlefield defeat back in 2014, when uh, truly ISIS had not had uh, anything but a string of pretty glittering victories at that time, if you think back. And the US was on the hunt for a partner that was willing to take the fight and to die in the fight against ISIS, but not bent on toppling Assad because everyone knew there was no appetite in that moment in the United States from the Obama administration for regime change. It really felt that it had been elected to end wars, not to begin them. And so here comes this fighting force very few people had ever heard of outside uh, the region, and they are bringing it to ISIS. And here is women, a women with women's emancipation right at the center of their ideology, standing up against the men of the Islamic State and fighting to their last breath to stop them. One of the things I wanted to talk about today, uh, in Daughters of Kobani, you, you noted that women weren't just auxiliary fighters. Um, we, we've seen that even, even going back over time. We've seen women auxiliary fighters and support um, and enablers in a lot of these different areas. But in the YPG, they were combat leaders, um, and they didn't lead just, just uh, other women. They led men as well. And so you know, you've gotten a chance to talk to them and interview and, and see what kind of uh, uh, people we're talking about here. What kind of attributes did you see in them that really made them effective leaders? I'll tell you what U.S. 
special operations folks told me about them. They said they are warriors. That is the thing you note about them is that, you know, one a special operations veteran who spoke with me, he had, of course, come of age, like so many uh, of the folks listening in the post 9-11 conflicts, Iraq, Afghanistan, Afghanistan, Iraq, 12, 13, 14, 15 deployments. And he said to me, this was the first time I had worked with women in a partner force. And I wasn't sure what to expect. Then you sit down, you start talking about battle plans and you realize that the warrior ethos is the same. And in the end, he told me he really wanted his daughters to be like them. And I have to say on that note, it just in the last 72 hours, I've gotten several notes from men who served uh, in alongside these women from the U.S. side, U.S. Special Operations soldiers who wrote to me saying, thank you for telling this story, both for us and more importantly for them. And it's a testament to the tremendous respect they have for them as people who had the will to bring the fight to ISIS and who never gave up. That's a fantastic answer. And I think um, there's there's been a theme of that across from reading Ashley's War um, over to Daughters of Kobani, the capability uh, of women fighters. And I think th- this is interesting for what we think about um, the Kurdish YPG fighters, you know, bes- besides their bravery and their accomplishments, they're still considered a militia in a lot of places, not a uniform military force. And so what do you think their achievements, coupled with what we saw out of uh, the, the support for the CSTs in Ashley's war, what does that mean for women in combat in the uniform force? It's been interesting because this entire book started because one of the soldiers from Ashley's war called me from Syria. And I was actually picking up my kids. I was hiding in the bushes. <laughs> I know some of you are home during co- during lockdown, hiding from your children, even as I speak. So I was hiding in the bushes so they didn't see me. And she called me from Syria and said, you have to come. You have to see what's happening here. You have to see that women are in the partner force. And it's not that they are just leading. They're leading men in battle. And they are also having the full respect from the U.S. side. She said, it just looks like nothing else we've done before. And the the other thing that you have to know, Gail, is that they're also fighting for equality and they're hardcore is what she said. So I think, you know, that was the introduction. And I do think that there, it it just shows yet again, that there are Admiral McRaven read the book and his first reaction when he was one of the first two people to read it actually. And I was very nervous sending it out. You know, it's your baby when it's just in pages form. And he wrote me back saying, the first line of what he was talking about, he said, for anybody who ever had a doubt about women in combat, this book answers it. So we've got a really wide range of listeners. We've got everybody from academics, students, civilians. We've got senior army leaders, senior DOD leaders, officers. What I want to ask is what lessons would you like for our audience to take from your book? What should they be learning from this? Several. Uh, First of all, I hope they find inspiration from people who would not allow limits to be placed in their way. You know, we follow in the Daughters of Kobani, so many of these women on their journey. You know, uh, Znareen becomes uh, someone we get to know. Her parents say she can't marry who she loves. She can't go to university because of tradition and because she's a girl. And we follow her all the way through her journey, going as a commander of the Women's Protection Units and helping to liberate her hometown from the Islamic State and having girls come up to her and seeing her as a role model. So I think, I hope people take inspiration from this moment in which so many of the rules which govern our lives are being rethought. This book is right about that topic. Secondly, on the military side, on the national security side, let's talk about the partner force. 
This is a partner force. This was a buy with and through that did everything it was asked. These are the people who fought on the ground, the Islamic State for us, and who continued to keep the pressure on ISIS. And I hope they see that for all the discussion of buy with and through and all the heartache we've had uh, in the last two decades of conflict, that lessons have been internalized by folks who uh, are conducting these wars and leading these wars, and that women can very much be right at the center of that. Thirdly, as the Biden administration comes in, and this whole notion of CT plus, right, this counterterrorism plus, what does it mean when you have U.S. air power plus a light footprint from the special operations side, plus a ground force willing to commit itself to the fight? And this really does prove out the case that it is not pretty, it is deeply challenging, but it can be possible. And money, many lessons should be learned and should be gleaned from this. And then finally, I would say the and then what question must be answered at the start. Because the and then what question has hung over every decision made on Syria, which in turn was shaped by the ghost of the Iraq war. You cannot talk about US policy in Syria without talking about Iraq. And because the uh, options that the US felt it had when it came to fighting ISIS in Syria, in fact, when it came to broader, to responding much more broadly to the tragedy that the Syrian civil war became, uh, were shaped and were limited by the experience of Iraq. And so I hope that people see that um, you must figure out, are you committed to the peace after you win the fight? which doesn't mean committing tens of thousands of troops or tens of millions of dollars, but having conviction that once you are with this partner, you do you stay with it through the end of whatever that is. And you understand what the end is in part, or at least the shape of it as you go in. Because the, there's a beautiful memo that's included at the end of this book that Ambassador Roebuck wrote that ended up in the New York Times called Present at the Catastrophe, talking about uh, the partner force in northeastern Syria and how actually working with the U.S. had put a target on its back inadvertently. And I think you have to be very conscious of what you're asking people to do on America's behalf as you go in. And there's a moment toward the end of the book where Mitch Harper, one of the special operations uh, soldiers who's been part of this policy from the beginning, is looking around in Raqqa, realizing that this it's been a truly immensely challenging. John Spencer is kind of going to be studying this for years of, of the urban combat that was Raqqa and, and the horrid nature of the inhumanity. And we watch these women really go up against it and try to, to uh, mitigate as much as they can this. But, but he, Mr. Harper comes over to Raqqa and realizes that no one is talking about what comes after the fighting. And as every listener knows, it is much easier to kill a terrorist than it is to slay an ideology. And that must be thought of at the start. No, that's great. And I want to jump on that phrase, and then what? So you've, got, you've done a great job of chronicling what uh, women warfighters have been able to accomplish. But what do you think the future of women on the battlefield looks like? Well, I think the future of the women in this story is one in which the military peace was always a means to an end in the political arena. For the women who fought both before ISIS was ISIS, right, in 2013, and what was Nusra and other groups, right, um, and then eventually fought ISIS for a half decade alongside the Americans. Uh, this was always a way to show that if women could lead in battle, they could govern in peace. And if you look at, and the book really talks about the political piece of this, right, women mentioned 13 times 
in the compact, in the governing document for this territory recognized by nobody, but is governed by this document. And I mean, when I say recognized by nobody, its borders aren't recognized either inside Syria or out. Um, But its document talks about girls have a right to education. Women have a right to economic equality. Uh, All women are equal. Women have, uh, for for issues that relate to women, there will be women judges, women represented in politics. I mean, this goes farther than anything we've seen almost anywhere else in the world. And it is because of the ideology that says, you know, the Kurds can't be free unless women are free. And even as that expands to include certainly other ethnic groups and a multi-faith, multi-ethnic kind of self-rule that is their experiment, uh, women remain very much at the heart of it. And it does look different when women leave. I want to open this next question up pretty wide. Feel free to go anywhere you want with it. Um, What are we missing? What are the Army and the DOD not thinking enough about or paying enough attention to when it comes to this, when it comes to women on the battlefield? It's just about talent and it's about America's national security. Truly, in the end, this is about America's national security. When we talk about this story in this book, this is about the partner who lost 10,000 of its forces to stop the Islamic State so that it would be much harder for ISIS to have a launching pad to launch attacks in the region, in Europe, and certainly right here in the United States. So in the end, it is about America's national security and who your partners are and who your allies are in that. And so I just hope people take a bit of hope and inspiration from knowing that while we never talk about it, and it's rarely discussed for for reasons that we can get into if you'd want, and this is a, a story of policy that achieved what it set out to. I often joke I'm much more inspired uh, and have there's much more of a can-do spirit in northeastern Syria than northwest Washington, because there is just this sense of getting on with it that people have. And I do think there is a sense still in Washington that we can't. I was in a meeting and in a briefing in Washington talking about options. And they said, you know, um, what if, you know, well, we can't do this and we can't do that. And we can't do that. And I said, why not? You know, we're the United States. Like, Why can't we? put the diplomatic heart into this, put the diplomatic muscle into this. Like, why can't we imagine a world in which just because things haven't been doesn't mean they are? I have a question because you've written these books that are, you know, not, not just female empowerment, but really just about powerful women as well. The, this idea that um, they have this capability and a lot of times it's unrealized until it is, like you said. Um, and we see that in Daughters of Kobani and in Ashley's War uh, with the support of special operators. And I think when I read Ashley's War, there was, there was a lot in there um, about the unique talents and abilities um, and avenues that were opened by bringing women into um, from from the cultural support teams, and you've done a lot of work recently um, with with Rebellion Defense, with Shield AI, and, and working in these tech spaces, um, kind of parlaying what you've observed from your your books. Um, what can women offer in the, the tech field that we're kind of missing right now? Um, unfortunately, you know, we, we've seen the domination stem of, of being a male dominated field and we're trying to open that out. So what are we missing in tech um, from, from the p- female perspective? The theme that animates so much of the work I have the privilege of doing, and I really mean, just, it's a true privilege to, to share stories from people who are, who, are ordinary people pressed into extraordinary circumstances whose heart and bravery shine through is this, which is suffocated opportunity is the enemy of global stability. 
I deeply believe that. I have interviewed girls in Afghanistan who could have been so much, except that people decided for them at age nine and 10 and 11, what their future would be. Bright, incredible young people whose futures is decided because of how they were born, where they were born, what parents they were born to, uh, and have this shining potential that benefits all of us. And so to me, it is about how do you untap or, you know, uncork the potential, the God-given potential that people possess and put it to work to benefit us all. Because so many of the structures that exist today no longer serve us. And this book really is about people rewriting the rules that govern our lives and reshaping the way we think about structures. And I think that to me is what I hope people take, just reshaping the notion of power. That's a great answer. And, and I kind of want to follow on with that, with this next question. Let's talk about some advice that you might have for the younger generation out there. So let's, let's say you're, I mean, we will often get um, folks who are in college listening to this podcast, but let's even go below that in elementary school um, and high school. Let's say you're talking to future journalists or authors, especially those young women out there. What advice do you have for them? Never give up. Truly, because uh, I write from an outsider's perspective. Look, I, I, uh, I have, a, I live in a pretty fancy world now, right? I've, I've, adjunct senior fellow at Council on Foreign Relations. I went to Harvard Business School. Uh, I'm a Fulbright scholar. I have all this privilege, but I came from a community of single moms, none of whom had graduated from college, uh, certainly not gone to graduate school, all of whom worked two jobs. Uh, my mom worked at the phone company during the day and sold Tupperware at night. And I think because I come at so much of this conversation from an outsider's observation point, I see things that might be un- invisible to others. And I see them as important. Even this book, I can't tell you how many people <laughs> said to me, oh yeah, I kind of heard about a story. It's interesting. And I was like, interesting. <laughs> what are you talking about? You know, <laughs> it's like, you know, you're watching Thor Ragnarok with the Valkyries. Like this is a real life version, you know? Of course there's geopolitical complexity and the book very much tackles that. But at the heart of it, it's women who have women's rights right at the center going up against the men who bought and sold women at the center of their ideology. And if you cannot get a more Shakespearean kind of showdown between forces. And so I think confidence in knowing that it's okay to be an outsider, and it actually is a huge advantage because you see things that others don't and you hear things that others don't. And you have a perspective that allows you to have the perseverance that maybe others don't have, because at the end of the day, it really is about getting up every single day and going to work, no matter what's happened the day before and never giving up and then opening the door for all those folks who come after you. I think that's a phenomenal answer. And that um, is what we try to do with mad scientists as well is try to bring in um, outsiders who have, who have different ideas um, and, and make sure we're getting out of the echo chamber of the military. Um, I want to transition to our uh, what we call our rapid fire questions, but take your time. Uh, this is where we get you go very slowly on these. I, I haven't slept very much the last few days. <laughs> uh, we're, this is where we really get to know our guests a little bit more. Um, what technology or trend keeps you up at night? It's not something that uh, I would say keeps me awake, but but keeps me vigilant, which is I do think that it's very important 
that U.S. leads when it comes to emerging technology. It's why I've, I've had the privilege of doing the private sector work I've done. It's because it's not between the U.S. and another democracy for leadership in this next era, right? It's, it's about a small D democracy flawed and a work in progress as we may be here in the United States, right? It really is about which values lead in the next technological era. And so overall investment and, and really oomph and, and kind of commitment to leading in this sector, I think is, is deeply important for the United States. Uh, what's something about you most people might not know that you're willing to share on air? <laughs> that I'm willing to share. That's the real question. Well, I, can I give you something I shared in the book for the first time, which I never did before? Uh, so my father was born in Baghdad and uh, I grew up sort of, you know, among worlds. My mom was a single mom, very much, you know, you can see it, you can be it, you know, working all the time and, and taught me so much. And my father, you know, was just this amazing character who um, one day we were, I think we had just played soccer and I'd seen him visiting his family. And I, and I said something about, you know, women and how they were treated. And he looked at me and he said, do you really think men and women are equal? And, and he didn't mean it, honestly, in an insulting way, like from the world that he came from. It was mind blowing. It was it was truly unfathomable. And so late, years later, he had on a Harvard Business School T-shirt in South Florida. And this lady came up to him on the board and was in where we were uh, eating lunch and said, oh, how's your son doing? And he looked at her and he said, why can't it be my daughter? And I said, oh, it only took you three decades, but you really got there. I'm so proud of your journey. So, yes, I think, you know, that's something I've really, I'd never talked about uh, any of this before, but it felt very relevant because of this book. No, thank you so much for sharing. And now a question that tells us a lot about our guests. What is your favorite movie? <gasps> oh my God, you can't make me choose one. Can I give you three, please? I'm I'm a movie obsessive. Everybody peace on this. So yes, you can give us okay, three. So I love TV. I'm not one of those people who's like, oh, I don't watch TV. No, I love TV with the joy of a latchkey kid, right? Like I love TV. There's almost nothing other than reality TV and some brands of it that I won't watch. So my favorite movies. Okay. I love the lives of others, the German, the lives of others. I cannot recommend it enough to you. This film is so beautiful. It will break your heart and it will take you into this world of people trying to figure out what the right thing to do is as, East, as Germany is divided. Um, it is, is beautiful. It is truly something I cannot recommend to you enough. Okay, so then on, the, <laughs> on a different note, last holiday, Queen Latifah, you cannot get much better than that. I watched it, I don't know, maybe 25 times. It's sort of a comfort food for me. Uh, yes, that's true. And then the third one, I, I actually have watched and rewatched. It's not a movie, but I really love Band of Brothers. I love Band of Brothers. I think Band of Brothers, every time I've written a book. So when I wrote Ashley's War, I really I had kind of the Black Hawk Down model where you started with one family and you worked out in the reporting process. And I read a lot. I read Black Hawk Down several times when I was thinking through Ashley's War of, you know, because the reporting process was so similar. I've never actually met uh, him, but I, but, you know, I, I very much feel like we've, we've kind of lived in, in parallel worlds. And I think that film also does a tremendous job. But really, when I was writing Daughters of Kobani, I thought so much about Band of Brothers because we're following um, people who are putting their lives on the line for ideals, for principles, right? For their, for their people. Uh, and we're also seeing their humanity, 
there's a scene in Daughters of Kogani where uh, Rojda, who becomes, you know, the, the special operations folks interlocutor in the fight in Raqqa, uh, she's in Kobani. It's 2014. They're, they have fewer weapons, fewer ammunition, fewer everything, right, than their uh, adversaries. And her, the phone rings, and it's her mom. And she's instead of, you know, you know, you did so, right? She's sort of like, you can't not answer when your mom calls. So she puts up the phone and her mom just hears the bullets going by and starts crying on the phone. And she's like, you know, I had no choice because she was going to call other family members and other people if I didn't answer because she would think the worst. But then I, I couldn't talk to her, obviously, in that moment. So I, I, I do. It's that humanity, which I think Banner Brothers does so beautifully uh, shares that I hope people see. I do love that scene in the book. Sorry, mom, in the middle of a firefight. Um, that was that was just incredible. But uh, we will also, uh, after this episode, have to take a look at comparative reviews between Siskel and Ebert uh, on the lives of others and uh, the last holiday. It's quite a, quite a diverse mix of, of films you threw out there. And and you, you mentioned Thor Ragnarok earlier. What do you think of that? Thumbs up, thumbs down? Oh, thumbs up, thumbs 100%. up. And I think Tessa Thompson is my you know, is my hero. I, I love her. And in fact, uh, I used her as my uh, avatar for a while. So excellent. Just on, on that note, I had written um, Gina Prince Bythewood, who, who directed uh, another film on Netflix, which I highly recommend called The Old Guard. It's great, right? With Charlize Theron, it just came out. I remember writing her when I saw uh, Thor Ragnarok saying, you know, everybody's talking about the Valkyries on this, but truly every time I come back from Syria, I, I see Thor Ragnarok and just the parallels are real. I love it. Thank you so much for sharing with us. We really appreciate it. Um, where can our audience follow you at? Uh, on Twitter at Gail Lemon, G-A-Y-L-E-L-E-M-M-O-N. Uh, I'd love to see you there and uh, write anytime, just contact at gaillemon.com. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Gail. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Gail samak for talking with us. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci. And don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil.